Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tuso. And I'm Anne Friedman. We're talking about Joe Biden again today. There is no rest for the weary. <laughs> Aminatu can no longer come to the phone. Goodbye. Aminatu has left the chat. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Ann Friedman. Hi, Amina Tuso. How's it going? You know, <laughs> every every time I'm just like, how do I answer that question? I'm not really sure how to answer it. How's it going for you? I am having a really hard time, but um, I am also uh, fine. You know, it's like two things can be true. Yeah, so I think it's that's just uh, impossible. I think that's why I struggle to answer the question. I, I feel I feel the same way. Yeah, and I'm I'm sorry to tell you that we we're talking about Joe Biden again today. There is no rest for the weary. <laughs> Aminatu can no longer come to the phone. Goodbye. Aminatu has left the chat. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I am actually, you know, all jokes aside, I am um I am really excited about picking back up on the conversation that we had last week about this because it is not often that we feel strongly enough about something that we break up the conversation. Shall we get into it? Let's do it. So um, if you did not listen to last week's episode, we recommend that you know you go back and do that. We talked about a little bit of like a 90s Joe Biden flashback, his history with Anita Hill at the Clarence Thomas hearings, his authorship of the Violence Against Women Act and the way he has framed that authorship in the years since. And the many photos and allegations of him inappropriately touching women in all kinds of contexts, but largely not in a kind of, in, in those cases, not in a like assault kind of way, in more of like a, this is crossing some boundaries, but it does not meet maybe like a criminal or legal definition of, of assault. So like, those are the kinds of things we were talking about last week. Real. What are we talking about this week? Well, this week, we are talking about the current reality, both the conversation about Joe Biden specifically and the conversation about what do we want from our leaders and how do we really process what it means to live in a world where men are the default in leadership is a conversation that I think we're going to be having for our lifetimes. And so I think that all of this can be true that like, I'm not psyched about uh, the person who is <laughs> who is the the Democratic uh, the presumptive Democratic nominee, and at the same time, it's well, um, I would it is it would be better for the world if this person won than um, if the our current reality continues. And so I you know it's just it's an impossible kind of choice to make. It is sometimes really hard to talk about, and I find myself like going back and forth about like ah like you know, like, what do I want, blah, blah, blah. And then I, you know, it's just, it's, it's a really, it's a tough pill to swallow. Yeah. So first up, I had a conversation with our friend, Laura McGann, who is the politics editor at Vox about an article that she wrote recently about her reporting to vet some allegations about 
Biden's behavior in the 90s. And it's it's kind of a complicated story. So rather than try to summarize too much, I think maybe we should just get into the interview with Laura and let her do it. Laura, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Anne. Good to be here. So when did you first hear from Tara Reid? Tara and I first met uh, about a year ago in early April 2019. She gave me a call because she wanted to share a story that she felt was relevant, uh, a story about Joe Biden that was unfolding at the time. A few weeks before she called me, a number of women had stepped forward uh, to say that Joe Biden had made them uncomfortable in ways that he had touched them uh, mostly at public events, um, you know, campaign rallies and you know, political events. And what was interesting is that it wasn't new. Everyone in political media, in, including me, uh, we were aware that Joe Biden did this and for years he had gotten a pass. And what was changing is that women were confronting us in the media and saying, no, he shouldn't get a pass. This is inappropriate. And so I wrote a column about that myself. I sort of apologized as a person in, in media who never thought to call this out before. I was embarrassed about that. And I was really impressed with women who were coming forward. So when I got a call from Tara Reid, I was really eager to talk with her because this was such an important moment I felt in Me Too. And I'm always interested in the story of what do we do with men who operate differently than the sort of the worst monsters that we've seen in, in this era of, we know what to do with a monster. You, you throw them in prison, but what do you do with someone who maybe isn't acting in a criminal way? And so it was, I was interested to hear what she had to say. And what she said to me in our first conversation and went on to tell me multiple times, we talked many times over the course of me trying to report her story, she told this very consistent, clear narrative to me that she didn't see this as a story of sexual misconduct that she wanted to tell me. She really wanted to talk about the effects of abuse of power by a staff that wants to protect the person at the very top. And in this case, Joe Biden, who was a U.S. senator at the time. Tara was working for him, well, for the office in 1993. She was a staff assistant. And when she would attend staff meetings and meetings where Joe Biden happened to be, she said that he would put his hand on her shoulder. He might touch her hair or touch her neck. And it made her uncomfortable. She said it didn't feel like a, she used the phrase sexual misconduct. She said it didn't feel like sexual misconduct, but it made her uncomfortable. And it made her feel like people in in the meeting were looking at her maybe differently. And, And she just didn't, she didn't like it. And she spoke with supervisors about how it made her uncomfortable and she would like Joe Biden to stop. And soon after that, things got uncomfortable for her in the office. She had some of her responsibilities stripped, she told me, and she felt there was an icy kind of feeling in an office that she didn't feel anything odd before. And really what she was describing, as as she was alleging, is something that happens a lot in these cases where a woman speaks out, or it can be a man as well, but in the context of most of my reporting, it tends to be women who speak up about 
treatment in the office and then they're retaliated against. And in this case, she described what it was like to be pushed out of her job. She was in her 20s. She was very excited to have her first big job on Capitol Hill and she was pushed out. So even though she did the kind of air quote right thing of she spoke to her supervisor when she felt she was being retaliated against, she went to a different office in the Senate, she told me, and tried to file a report about how she was being treated. But ultimately, she left and she quietly kind of went back to California. And it, it was a story to me that I, listening to her, sounded very credible. It was consistent. And it was a story I really wanted to break. It was something I really wanted to write about because what I saw was we had seen the story of Joe Biden playing out as even in the most robust coverage of women stepping forward, there was a sense of, well, none of these women worked for him. They weren't um, directly connected to him. It's, it's, you know, the question of is it harassment if it's if it's a stranger sort of uh, question. And right. Like not only is it not criminal, but like, is it even an HR problem? Like that right. kind of. I mean, if a yeah. total mm-hmm. stranger puts his hand on your shoulder, well, so what? And actually, that's a whole other conversation where I will tell you so what and why, why that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, you, anyway, that's a whole other conversation. But it, um, it is. But I also want to call back to a conversation that we had last week on the show, which is you situated this in uh, 1992, 1993. Yes. Is that right? Like, yes. and, and that is a time in between the Clarence Thomas hearings and the passage of the Violence Against Women Act. And so there is really something going on, I think, as well with what the narrative is about Joe Biden and women at that time. You know, like it's really not hard to see how his staff would be very motivated to quash a story like this Mm. in any time. But like, especially in this moment, it's just hard not to look back and see those dates and think about that as well. I guess that is an interesting point that I just hadn't I hadn't really thought about it. I guess I was thinking about Congress as an institution and how we've seen this happen again and again, where offices act like fiefdoms to this day. And there's a lot of power decentralized into these little nooks across Capitol Hill. And there's very little accountability. And where do you go if you're being victimized? Where do you go if you have a problem? Of course, if you go to the chief of staff in the office, that person reports to the senator. They're probably good friends. There's not much recourse. So I was looking at it through that lens, but it is a good point about thinking about Joe Biden and his trajectory and his history with women, that this was that moment. So what happened then after you had this conversation with Tara on the phone last spring? So after our first conversation, she suggested I talk with a friend of hers who was essentially her core lady friend of 1992, 1993. They're still good friends today. So I called her friend and her friend said that they talked about it at the time and they were, you can imagine, they're women in their 20s in their first kind of jobs in politics and really real jobs in in their professional careers. And they were grappling with what to do and how to think about uh, this behavior. And what she described to me was a very similar narrative about this idea of abuse of power. And to paraphrase her, she was saying that Joe Biden would touch her on the shoulder, touch her hair, but it was always those kinds of touches that the kind of, oh, is, did you interpret it that way? That's not what I meant. Or that kind of, you can't, it, it's on this line of spectrum of behavior of not fully sexual misconduct, but kind of weird. And she said, 
she thought it was creepy that he was doing this kind of stuff in front of people. So her friends seemed very credible to me as well. And they'd known each other a long time and they had these similar stories. That night after I talked to, to Tara and to her friend, Tara followed up and sent me a personal essay that she'd written about how she thought about these issues and thought about this part of her life. And she ended up publishing a version of it in her local paper. She really was focused on the idea of an office protecting somebody and how in this case, it wasn't, I shouldn't say even, but it wasn't sexual misconduct. And they still, the power structure was such that he was much more important. So it was more important to somebody in an office to protect the senator from something as simple as saying to him, hey, don't please stop touching the staff assistant in meetings, it makes her uncomfortable. Like that feels like a very simple conversation to have, but- um, 101, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not, you know, I, I, I'm a manager, I run a team and look, if, if somebody said to me, hey, so-and-so is making me feel uncomfortable by X and I don't even care what X is, I'd take the person aside and say, hey, you know, could you please stop that? And the person I'd say 99% of the time would say, oh wow, of course. <laughs> like it doesn't seem, it seems very obvious, but in this case, what she was exploring is this question of uh, power is more important than one person. And so if it meant pushing out this young woman with high hopes about having a political career and a life in public service, so be it. And it, it struck me as important because unfortunately it is very common. And I thought it was an important, this is an important story to tell about the experiences of women who get pushed out of their jobs. And, you know, we need, we need, smart people in these types of important jobs and, and we're pushing out, we're losing, you know, it's, it's what they're losing, but it's also what we're all losing when we're limiting who contributes in society. And, and it just, I get very worked up about it. And so I was very eager to tell her story. And I started from the premise that a lot of what she was saying checked out. She worked for Joe Biden at the time. She was who she said she was. I had a lot of reason to believe her. So I, I got started. I thought I'm, this is worth the investment of my time to check it out. And unfortunately, a couple things happened. One, she was talking to quite a few reporters at the time. It wasn't just me. She also was talking to the New York Times, which she told me about. She was talking to the Associated Press and she was talking to a reporter, um, a local reporter. And she was very, Tara was very eager to get her story out there. I think she'd made the decision to do it and she wanted it done. She wanted it over with. And the other paper published very quickly. They published a short item with her say and her friend, but they didn't speak to the Biden campaign. They didn't have any voices from the time. And really the story sort of flopped at that point. And she was also made fun of on Twitter for some past essays that she had written, which to real talk, if you're going to write a love poem about Vladimir Putin, like it's going to come up, like the internet will find it. So in any case, I, I did uh, continue to report for a few more weeks just to see if I could flesh out the story anymore. And just to explain what I mean by that, on the one hand, I had her friend who told me that she was talking about this at the time. That is one type of corroboration for a reporter for a story of, okay, there's somebody talking about a thing that happened to them at the time. The, the harder part of the story really for me to iron out was essentially a wrongful firing story. And to do that, I needed somebody with direct knowledge of the decisions that were being made in the office. 
And so I worked with her to try to get a document that she said she filed at the time. And I thought that that would certainly be the type of thing that would help because it would show she complained and that she left shortly thereafter. And that that's very useful to a reporter. I couldn't, mm-hmm. we couldn't get that document. We tried, I tried various offices. We, we really tried great lengths and it doesn't mean that it didn't exist or that something nefarious happened or that she never filed it. It just, it's, it was a document from 1993 and there wasn't much procedure at the time. So I wasn't that surprised we couldn't track it down. The other issue was, um, you know, it's from 1993. And she, she said to me that she spoke with a number of uh, friends and other offices about her problems. And she was trying to get some help. And there were staffers from other offices who told their bosses and, and tried to help her. And so she couldn't remember the names of any of these people that she had spoken to at the time. She had a couple nicknames for people, but she just couldn't remember anyone's name. So I basically created a, a, a list of over 100 people. I'd done research to try to find people who would fit the descriptions of who she was talking about. I made a lot of calls to try to find people. We went through the list of this dozens and dozens of people and could never identify any of the people that she remembered. And I didn't take that to mean she wasn't telling me the truth. I just think that there were, at any given time, a lot of people work on Capitol Hill. It's it's hard to go back in time and find people who might have only been there for a short period of time. And so I had nothing to support the wrongful firing in terms of reporting. And I decided at that point, based on what I had, to not publish her story. So by the end sort of end of April or so, that's where my time with Tara Reid ended, that we talked a lot during that time period. She worked with me to try to get sources. And I had to just be honest with her that unless the document appears or unless I hear back from somebody from one of these dealers I put out, I really can't move forward with the story as I, you know, as I, as I had it. And I would love to take a pause here and talk a little bit about that standard that you're operating under at this point for, you know, how do you decide whether to publish a story like Tara's? And, you know, I know that this case in particular, I've seen, you know, countless tweets from people saying like, well, I guess Believe Women isn't, you know, doesn't apply if it's inconvenient or, you know, like from from all sides sort of saying that this is somehow proof that women don't actually deserve to just be believed straight up. There is uh, there is something that is beyond that. And I would love your thoughts on that, on that phrase and um, how you thought about it at this stage in your reporting. I have a bit of luxury at Vox that I have, we have more of a kind of magazine sensibility a bit. And so we're allowed to speak with some, um, we're allowed to be a little more transparent than other places. And the piece that I ended up writing recently about all of this, I said, I found her credible. I did. And I wanted, I'd say even more so than I believed her. I think the key thing was I wanted to believe her because I do think women by and large, don't make this stuff up. It doesn't it doesn't do you any good. There's no upside to putting yourself out there and saying this kind of thing. So when there's great personal cost coming with something like this, it just, it, it I tend to start from the point of, okay, this, 
if you're who you say you are and you, you did work in the office at the time, you know, obviously, if it if it turned out she didn't work for Joe Biden, it's like, well, OK, that's different. But but it lined up. And I feel like if I had met her as a friend, <clears throat> if we were friends and she told me this story in 2019 and we're going to get into what she's now saying in 2020. But if if she told me a story like this as a good friend, I would believe her. 100%. I would believe her. But she and I were meeting in a different context of I'm a reporter and she's a source. And she had come to me not to tell me privately, but she wanted to tell the world her story. And the standard for that is the story has to stand up on really two legs, three legs, a number of legs. I mean, it's People want to look at the work and know why they should believe it. You know, I have to show my work of why I think this is true or why I think it's likely true or worth their time to consider. And, you know, in most of these Me Too stories, they require both corroboration from people at the time or people um, who maybe women spoke to over the years. And when some of these stories, whether it, like when it gets into wrongful firing, we saw this in the media, we saw it at Fox News, we've seen it in other places. You have to have also that other piece of something that shows that this person wasn't fired for some other reason or didn't quit their job for some other reason. And you need to be able to show that to the audience. So the audience understands why I believe this person. And I think that that's something that's maybe not as obvious um, to people who aren't following these stories closely, just how richly reported they are. The ones that really hold men accountable are richly reported and really strong because you know men have been getting away with this kind of stuff for millennia. And it's fairly recent that men are being held to account. And when you're trying to take something on as strong as that, you you have to go in bulletproof. And that's what it takes. And so my point of view is if I'm going to run a story that's going to be attacked, that's going to be viewed as political, where the source's personal history and personal integrity is going to be attacked, regardless that it's going to be attacked, it has to be as strong as it can. And I didn't feel like looking at what I had, which was her word and the word of a single friend, I didn't think it was going to hold up. And so I, I I decided not to run it. Well, and I wanted to ask you about that in particular, because I think one thing that has happened at this stage in the way we talk about Me Too stories is that people who are on the outside looking in have a tendency to collapse personal belief in the way you describe like hearing a story like Tara's as a friend from maybe a journalistic standard of proof to a courtroom standard of proof. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are all different things. And I think that we there's a real tendency right now to kind of say like, oh, well, if we believe women, then we throw all men in jail immediately or something like super dramatic like that. Or even something like, oh, if you really believe women, you would print whatever you believe in your heart that is true when they talk to you. And actually it's, it is, we're talking about a lot of different venues for either seeking justice or feeling heard or giving support and they are not all co-equal. And, and I just like, I really think that your piece brought that out for me in a new way. And so thank you for going into some depth about how you pulled those pieces apart for yourself. Yeah, I think that's important. And it's what context am I 
believing a woman and it's, it's tough. And I think if I fast forward now to 2020 and Tara Reid is back in the news, she went on a podcast in March and it was during the throes of the heated primary between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. So there was kind of a new political context playing out. And she steps forward and says on the Katie Helper podcast that not only was she pushed out of Joe Biden's office for telling the staff she was uncomfortable, but in addition, uh, Joe Biden sexually assaulted her uh, in, in a hallway in the Senate at the same time. She describes a very serious um, incident, a very serious sexual assault, which I, I feel comfortable. I mean, it's, it's, it falls under the umbrella of rape. Just mm-hmm. to make clear to people that this is a different type of um, accusation. And, and she describes it on a podcast. The podcast show itself, it's hosted by a, a radio personality, more so than a, a journalistic show. So she speaks out on this, on this show, and she follows up with the website The Intercept, which is also more of a pro-Bernie Sanders, anti-Joe Biden publication. So she's now come out on these two different platforms, making this um, accusation she didn't raise a year ago. And at the same time, she herself has gone on a political journey, and she's now herself an ardent Bernie Sanders supporter. Oof. Yes. So I, I look at this, and I think, wow, okay. I, 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 ha- I just needed to gather myself, and I went, and I actually had to get special permission to go into the Vox office, which has been shut down, to get my notes. And I looked at what she had said to me at the time, and I reread the essay that she sent me, and she actually had sent me an additional essay a few days later. And reading those essays and reading my notes, I followed up with her because it. This is again where the question of believing a woman began to, I, I would say, torment me in the moment. I mean, and I don't want to sound that my experience here is nothing like the torment of dealing with sexual assault. I just, I'm talking about this in the sense of a reporter who cares about these issues grappling with how to do my job well. That was my, what I was struggling with. And so I, I talked to Tara again. I talked to her friend again. And actually Tara and I ended up talking for quite a long time over the course of a week or I was following up with her and just trying to understand um, how she went from telling a story to me about, she really highlighted that it was not about sexual misconduct to a story that includes this really serious sexual assault. And she said that she wasn't ready to come forward a year ago. And again, if I were her friend and she told me over the course of a year, a story that revealed itself over the course of a year, I would understand if, if a friend told me her story that way, that, that wouldn't, I wouldn't bat an eye because I think it's, it's difficult to tell personal stories, especially traumatic stories and necessarily a linear way or in a way where you feel comfortable that, that wouldn't give me pause. But as a journalist, I'm looking at what she told me a year ago in which she asserted this wasn't sexual misconduct. And now she's adding in this additional, this additional accusation, which it's not just an addition, really. It was the frame of the story has now changed. It is a story of sexual misconduct. And one of the things that she said on the show and she was trying to explain why she's speaking now and about this and didn't in 2019 is she said that the core reason for her was 
the, the media didn't want to hear a story of sexual misconduct, if they didn't want to hear about a sexual assault, and that reporters were pushing for a different narrative. And I asked her about this. I said, you know, you, when you called me, one of the first things you said was you wanted me to understand this as not a story of sexual misconduct. And you sent me an essay after we spoke saying this is not sexual misconduct. And then you sent me a second essay saying this is not sexual misconduct. And your friend told me this was not sexual misconduct. And both of you have exonerated Biden proactively saying that he he didn't do those types of things to you. And why why would you say that it was the media? She really, she didn't have an answer per se. She said that it felt collective to her, that there was this collective feeling that she had. And I spoke to her friend as well, again, on the same question. And I, she said to me, you know, the reason she didn't tell me about the assault last year was that, you know, it's her friend's story to tell. And she was not going to go beyond what her friend felt comfortable letting her share. Um, and they had had many conversations about it a year ago, and they've had many conversations since where she has, Tara said, I, I want you to share this part. And again, I said to uh, Tara's friend, I understand that, but it wasn't that you left out a piece of the story. It's that you presented a case to me that has fundamentally changed, that you had said to me specifically, Joe Biden never tried to kiss her, that Joe Biden never touched her that way, or he never he never did anything to her privately. He said it was all in front of people. And I then found myself in this place of as a as a reporter concerned that the story had changed. And even as a person trying to imagine being that friend, it would be very hard for me personally to say to somebody, so-and-so did not do X to my friend when I knew he had. I, I would be hard-pressed, I think, to do that. So I, I was puzzled. I, I really grappled with it. I also think that the person I was talking to, or the person on the other end of the phone, she doesn't, she sounds sincere. She's telling me this. And I, I didn't know, you know how to balance that. At the same time, other sources, I think anyone who's been following the story is now wondering about, well, what about her brother and what about um, the neighbor that has come out? So her brother has now spoken to the media and he first said that she told him she was having trouble in Biden's office at the time. A few days later, he sent the Washington Post a text message following up and saying, actually, I also know that Biden uh, you know, had assaulted her in some way. And I asked her, well, why didn't you mention that you had told your brother about this to me last year? And she didn't really have an answer. You know, I she didn't mention her brother to me. She didn't mention this neighbor who has now stepped forward to talk about how she talked to Tara Reid about the sexual assault and the harassment in 1996. And she said, well, I, you know, I didn't know that that would be a relevant source because I told her in 1996. And, you know, maybe that's true. I, I kind of thought, well, maybe she misunderstood what I was looking for and, you know, that I can't expect a normal person living her normal life to know what a reporter needs and what counts as, you know, air quote, counts as corroboration or what's helpful. But then I, I saw in an, another article, um, some reporters at the Associated Press had asked her the same question of, well, why didn't you tell us about these other sources? And she declined to comment. So, you know, and at the same time, in her 
in her favor, you know, there was a tape that came out of her mother who she told me her mother knew about this, but her mother was since deceased. And so I wasn't able, um, obviously, to talk to her mother. There was a tape of her mother on Larry King calling in, and it suggests that she knew her daughter was struggling in Joe Biden's office. And it did not corroborate the sexual assault, but it clearly, you know, clearly her mother was concerned about her, about something going on. And so I was weighing all of this. You know, what what do you, what do I make of this? When a source changes her story, when sources that she didn't tell me about a year ago appear, and at the same time, do I do I really believe that three people would step forward and lie for someone? I I don't. It's hard to imagine that. Um, I don't think people generally lie about these issues. So I I what I tried to write in my piece was. A look at all of this, of how, what I know uh, about the story, what I learned last year, and how I'm thinking about it now, which is that in the Me Too era, there are stories that could very well be true, but maybe we can't tell them because we don't have what we need to tell them, and that's heartbreaking, um, and that's my fear is that is to ever end up in a situation like that where someone's story doesn't get to be told because I feel like I can't. Um, but at the same time, I, I certainly don't want to tell a story that isn't true. Um, that is, that's wrong. And so I, I, I just wanted to try to help people understand why this story feels so confusing. And if it feels strange or I, hard to grapple with it's it's because it is a really difficult story um so that that's really what i was trying to do and i hope it i hope it was hope it was helpful for somebody out there so it was helpful for me i'll tell you that one person <laughs> so yeah i really i really appreciate it i don't think i have any other questions for you unless you can think of like a big part of this that we missed one thing i will say that i think is important a lot of people criticized me for taking on the story in a big way and profiling essentially Tareed and her story. And the question was, well, what about Trump? You know, I'm hmm. even people who maybe believe Tareed are saying, well, Trump has 20 women accusing him of this stuff. And, and, and why are we giving as much weight to one accusation as to so many? And I actually was annoyed at first as a reporter, like, hmm. Like, well, my story's not about that, so leave me alone. And then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, yeah, that's totally right. Why are we giving this so much attention right now and not um, Donald Trump? And it, it made me think about um, Me Too in, in another way, which is that the media has a bias towards things that are new, and Tara Reid's story is new. And I'm thinking a lot about how do I continue to write about Donald Trump right now, because he has a way of just being shameless. And so stories go away and, you know, the press covers them and then he stops responding and says, all these women are liars and we move on. And I'm really committed. Right. If none of his reporters care that he's a rapist, like why would any of the rest of us care? You know, we don't support him anyway. Like that's kind of the attitude, I think. I think so. And it's sort of like, well, we covered that. Yeah. We covered those 20 mm. back. You get, we, yeah, we, we did that a few years ago. Yeah. We, we talked about that time. He probably raped somebody next you know we're on to the next thing mm -hmm. and so I just that's something I, I actually think is a fair criticism and I'm glad that it was raised because that's something now I'm thinking about of how do we continue as a journalist to write about 
these issues even when they're not new. You know, it's just as relevant. Donald Trump's history is just as relevant today as it was yesterday, as it was three years ago, even though we aren't just learning it for the first time. So that's that's just something I'm thinking about. And I think podcasts are good because we have these conversations, even when things aren't brand new. So I'm appreciative yeah. that you're having me on and, and talking about them. Yeah, I I really appreciate you coming on to talk us through your reporting and um, the way you've grappled with this, because I think it is really helpful and informative for me. So, oh, you're welcome. Thanks, Laura. Thanks Dan. Thank you. <laughs> Laura McGann, always with accurate facts and uh, so smart and um, so fair. Yeah, and I really appreciate her transparency in writing this kind of like meta article about why why we aren't reading a different kind of article from her about this scenario. Like I found it just so helpful for her to illuminate some of these distinctions. Right. It's like a thank you for showing us your work, a thing that you don't always get to see uh, when you read the news. Right. Let's take a break. Okay. So where does this leave us on Joe Biden? It leaves me with the truth that I can both be critical of Joe Biden and not happy about the fact that this is the person that should beat Trump and also be able to have a conversation where I can say that I don't like Joe Biden, but it doesn't mean that I want Donald Trump to be president. Mm -hmm. You know, like all of those things can be true. Yeah, I... Tarana Burke had a series of tweets about this, um, which I don't know if you saw them, but I think that they really were very clarifying for me about what my expectations would be. And, you know, one of them, one of her tweets, I mean, it's a long series that we'll link to that I think it's worth, it's worth reading all of them. But she points out, many of you are only interested in this story because you are entertained by tr the trauma of others or because it has the potential to be politically expedient with no real mm. regard for the survivor. Like, I think that is a point well taken in terms of the conversation that's unfolding. And then she also has a point about the expectations of Joe Biden, where she says, at minimum, acknowledging that his demonstrated learning curve around boundaries with women at the very least left him open to the plausibility of these claims. No matter what you believe, we are allowed to expect more of the person running for U.S. president. And for me, that's really what it comes down to is how are you really reckoning with the behavior that you have fully admitted to and been documented doing and your actions toward that sort of behavior tell me a lot about your behavior in other contexts, frankly. I mean, that, wow, like, say it again louder for the people in the back. That's so <laughs> real. I, you know, I think a thing that is also just hard for, like, I, I will only speak about myself because I know, I know all the places that I, I struggle with this conversation is that there is the, for me, there is a part where, like, I, I get so angry that, men with this kind of behavior make us all complicit, you know? Mm. Joe Biden has the luxury of saying, like, I'm just a hugger or whatever, because in his reality, that is what a good person does. In my reality and in my own code of conduct and ethics, a good person is not someone who violates someone's consent. And the fact that I have to hold my nose and truly, like, be complicit in a system in which survivors are routinely like made to question their own sanity and their own integrity is and also are just made to feel unsafe is really 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 painful for me 
Yeah. I don't like that. And I, I do think you're right about this complicity point wherein I feel that so strongly too, the sense that even if we're only looking at behaviors that he has fully admitted to, I hate the idea that my vote is somehow an endorsement that it's okay to be kind of willfully ignorant of power dynamics and like grope women in public places. Like, like that's truly like, there is a part of me that feels like, well, when I check his name, I am voting for that. I am voting to say no big deal. And I know that's not how our system works. Like, I know that's not really what I'm doing. I'm going to vote for Joe Biden, obviously. I mean, or maybe that wasn't obvious, but I do hear you on that complicity front of like, it is, the vote is going to be loaded with that knowledge for me. Right. And at the same time, I just wish that like, when we have this conversation with people um, with people who say that they're progressive or people or even if they just say that they're Democrats or whatever, um, that when we have this conversation that we also don't devolve into a binary of either you're voting for him because you think he's amazing or you are withholding your you are you are not voting for him because you want the country to go to hell. You know, I think that it is incredibly it's incredibly difficult if there are people who are Democrats who are like not happy to vote for Joe Biden because they don't want to compromise their their ethics or they just can't be bothered to support him. That's not my problem. It's not that person's problem. That's Joe Biden's problem. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like you do need to be above reproach. And I just I feeling that like the Internet progressives are having a lot of conversations that are not productive because they don't account for the fact that everyone is right. You know, like <laughs> if you, if you want to, vo- if you want to vote for him and you're happy to do it, like good for you. If you vote for him and you you hold your nose, good for you. If you say that you are not going to vote for him also, that is a very valid choice. And we can't just like bully each other into just this, like very into like making decisions without fully examining like what it means for all of us to again, like be complicit in this kind of system. Yeah. And I mean, as Laura was saying, like the person who is currently in the White House is absolutely disgraceful, horrible. I know you read Rebecca Traster on the kind of trap for women who are likely to be in Biden's voting base. But the way she phrased it is is something that I've been thinking about a lot, which is I'm just going to read you this little passage So first of all, she explains how terrible Trump is, which we know. And then she says, in the fight to prevent this, Biden and his campaign will be calling on women, especially the women who have challenged him in the past, including on feminist grounds, to help him build support by rallying other women around him. That rallying will now have to entail somehow papering over the disgust and dismay provoked by multiple allegations of inappropriate touching and alleged assault made against yet another would-be president. And I just, I feel like this really crystallizes it. The request is, if you want to get rid of this person who is objectively terrible for your existence and your continued existence in this country, you have to kind of swallow it. You just have to ignore this big giant shit sandwich that we're serving you. God, I, we're we're seeing them like that same machinery is at work, right? It's the Biden campaign announced like pretty early on that he was like 100% going to pick a woman as his VP. Mm-hmm. Um, sounds great. I'm like, I would love a woman vice president, like shake things up. And at the same time, I'm like, wow, what a beautiful trap to lay for everyone. You are going to force people to carry water for you. And that's exactly what's going on. It's women who are making their case to be vice president are all women who are now publicly you know, forced to to defend him. 
And I have to say that it's been like really disappointing to to watch that news cycle. Yeah, because I think my expectation of all politicians who are supporting him, whether or not they're a woman who's in the running to be his vice president or, you know, regardless of their gender, I really expect in the endorsement some acknowledgement of the difficulty here at reconciling the fact that like his behavior is not amazing. Like, sorry, like recognizing what, what is like fully known about his record. And, and I mean that in terms of everything we talked about last week and not just about these more serious assault allegations. I really like would like to see everyone who's endorsing him, you know, Stacey Abrams, Kamala Harris, like Elizabeth Warren, Michelle Obama, uh, Barack Obama. I want to see all of those people acknowledge this reality when they say, and and yeah, I still really want this person to be president over Donald Trump. Like, can is that too much to ask that we just have that acknowledgement? And it, it, it turns out that it is too much to ask because our politicians like to speak to us like we're children, you know, like they're <sighs> the, like the patrician archetype of president. If we can dismantle like that lie in the next like coming years, that would make me really happy. It's truly is. It is so frustrating to have grown-ups talk to other grown-ups like we're idiots i was like no nothing would make me happier than a vp pick or you know like everyone who's endorsing biden all of them saying hey this guy needs to be president i don't love what he's doing but like this is the best that we have there's a world in which like to me i was like that kind of honesty actually turns out way more people to vote <laughs> than not because we're all on the same page about what's going on here And it's not infantilizing. And I, you know, and I think also part of my frustration about it is that, you know, like, remember the conversation that we on tour, we would talk about this, like running for president is actually like incredibly corny, you know, Mm -hmm. and (laughs) I like it's both corny and also I am reminded every time that I should never let my guard down about people who seek this kind of power because they will 1000% disappoint you. That's the only thing that is clear here. The way that like the game of politics butts up against the the expectation of elections means that you will a thousand percent be disappointed. They are trying to appeal to as many people as possible. It is also true that for anyone who wants power, like any kind of power, whether you are trying to be like the president of your like a high school thing or you are trying to be the president of the United States, that is an impulse that honestly should be like deeply examined and it is an impulse that should be deeply distrusted. Like we need people to be leaders, but also people are human. And so I think like part of my frustration is that there are a lot of politicians that I like, I get that from. I'm just like, okay, like I don't trust this guy, but we're doing this. I don't trust this person, but we're doing this. And then every once in a while, your heart gets broken all over again. And for me, that was Stacey Abrams, like hearing her say, watching her, really minimize what Joe Biden has said and then imply that actually women would be really excited to support Joe Biden. (laughs) That was, I, you know, it's like, it's not even that I'm disappointed in her. I was disappointed in myself because I was like, wow, I like clown makeup. You know what I mean? Like I've been, you forgot she was a politician. (laughs) Yeah. I forgot she was a politician. I forgot she was a politician, which is so nuts because I'm like, I have interviewed this person. I like, read up about her I you know and I and I share this like mostly you know like not it's not like I'm talking about this not because of my disappointment in Stacey Abrams specifically about this thing it's truly that I let my guard down you know and you're just it's like the seduction of oh 
this this person seems like they are different than the the regular politician and the truth is that like I feel like the mayor of like Boo Boo the Foolville, but <laughs> <laughs> like with my as a resident, of, <laughs> as a resident, I applaud you, my mayor. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it's truly, you know, and I and I'm not saying this to like harp on like Stacey Abrams the person. It's like all of these women who are running for VP are going like they are being challenged in the same way. It's like. The same questions are being asked of Kamala Harris. The same question is being asked of Gretchen Whitmer. There's not a way to win, which is what Rebecca's piece is all about. It's a trap. And at the same time, I am committed to wanting people in office who are not just all white and who are not just like old white guys. But even people who are not old white guys are not people that you should just like completely trust because they seem that they're different. Yeah, and that's kind of my point about wishing that this were just acknowledged in some of these statements. You know, the um, when when AOC, who was talking about this, who I think is actually, like, in this instance, the model for what I want to see, is not someone who has said um, it's, it's no big deal or, like, women should be thrilled to vote for him. But what she had said was, I think it's legitimate to talk about these things. She said, if what we want is integrity, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, like if we want to have like the integrity of our beliefs, we have to have an inconvenient and difficult conversation. And, you know, this is a replay of a lot of the like Al Franken stuff. It like brings up for me a lot of the feelings I have around Katie Hill, where like that seat just went to a Republican. And when I saw the news, all I felt was this rage toward her. Like, why did you blow with like your like sexual misconduct? Why did you blow like all of this labor that went into this? And that's kind of how I also feel is like, it is an inconvenience that is worth addressing because the consequences are also great of not addressing it. It's also hard to really separate from personal emotions about this issue. You know, like everything about this is... I hesitate to use a word like triggering, but like it, it really it really is so dependent on your personal experience, I think, like where and how you come down on the necessity of being open about what this choice really means and what, what you're really being asked to do when you're being asked to support Joe Biden. Right, because I think that for me, ultimately, it's, you know, more than just the presidency being at stake. It's just so clear to me from the way that we deal with all these issues that the people who consistently lose over and over and over again are survivors. Mm -hmm. You know, like we create really untenable, we create like untenable and unsafe situations for, for people. We create a situation in which we are by our actions and by our words are telling people that their lived experiences do not matter. And we do it in a way that, you know, it's it's just sport. It just becomes sport. And so for me, when when I want more from um, the Democratic nominee for president, it's because I really believe that we do not have a leg to stand on if we don't clean up our own house. Yeah. It is hard to, you know, to look at Trump and the, the many, many, many allegations against him and his like entire record of clear misogyny. And to say, well, this is the best that we can do. Our player also like dirty hands. That's not great. Right. Settling for not quite as bad, essentially. Um, yeah. And I think that your your point is really well founded in terms of recentering this conversation on survivors and how they are left to feel when when this is not discussed with openness and integrity. Because I this is why we had that long conversation about 
Biden and Anita Hill and the way Biden talks about the Violence Against Women Act and like, you know, that sense of like these talking points are not actually directed at people who have firsthand experience these things these talking points are directed at people who are very far removed and i think that like that has really come home to roost for me not just in his statements about this but in the statements of people who um want us to support him <sighs> boo boo the full veil um <laughs> population too what are you gonna do and i'm and i'm you know and i will also say that i still want him to be president i mean one reason why you know you said earlier like how rare it is for us to devote two episodes to something but i think for me that's kind of what it is is like i want to be able to say if i am encouraging people to get out the vote for this man which i which i will like i will tell you right now i need to also have something to show for the fact that like we're open to discussing the complication involved with that. You know what I mean? Like I need, I need to participate in this conversation with you about this. So like, thank you in order for me to feel good about saying vote for this guy. Like I truly like that is the reconciliation that I have to do. And I just like cannot understand politicians who have made another choice. Right. And, and for me, like by the same token, it's like, if you are, uh, you know, if you are a survivor or if you are a marginalized person who is very much like, actually, I do not want to support this person and it's really hard for me and you do not want to participate in the electoral, <laughs> in the electoral process. That's also a conversation that I'm open to having because I think that like, I'm going to get out the vote for this person, but I don't like it at all is um, I want to hear that from everyone who I know who is supporting him, you know, because I think that that's the only thing that will make it better is to just is to be really honest about what's going on instead of sweeping it under the rug and saying, well, you know, Trump is just so bad that like this is the best that we have. It's like mm, like our our star player is not so great. Right. It's not like the conversations that I have with strangers about politics. It truly is the way that we talk to each other about our choices. And because it's hard. It's so hard to feel that your your lived experience is minimized. It is devastating. But also to understand that every way that we live life in America just like hangs in the balance and that there are there's so many issues that are affected by the outcome of who wins this election is also something that I, you know, like I'm like I'm not blind to that, but I just wish that that we find really healthy and productive ways to have these conversations. Right. And, and also have them in ways that are, again, recentering survivors and their experience of this. Because one thing that, that, that really made me feel like I wanted to talk about this with you is like, you know, neither of us are like hardcore Bernard bros. You know what I mean? Like we are not, we are not having this conversation from a point of Tara Reid's story is like supporting a narrative we had about the Democratic Party or about like, you know what I mean? Like there, there is kind of like, there are all these layers of like who is incentivized to care about a story like this. And I think it actually requires work in this moment to continually say like what I care about is not just this specific survivor in question, but like all survivors who are watching and listening to this conversation play out. And not because of some political goal I have or don't have, but because like, the goal is actually to support survivors. It's not actually, it's like, it's a, it's a separate thing that is bigger than, honestly, bigger than the presidential election. I can't believe I'm saying that because we all know this is a huge, huge, huge election. Yeah. My kingdom for a woman VP who will say, um, this guy sucks, but I have to do this job.
Like I, I would die to hear that. Yeah. Or like not even, yes. Like some version, some version of that, that feels like slightly more palatable of like, this guy's behavior really sucks. And I am going to like take the loss, really try to talk to him about the way he addresses these issues. And that's something I'm going to do from the inside. But with the knowledge of all of this context is like, wow, wouldn't that feel amazing if, you know, like, like that's the kind of shit sandwich that I think someone's going to have to eat, right? <laughs> like, like the work on the inside, it's less about like the, how do you talk positively on the outside? But like, you know, I would consider eating that shit sandwich myself, right? Like, <laughs> like how do we, how do we like work with the levers of power that are at our disposal right now, which are, you know, wholly inadequate. I have uh, never been happier not to be a United States citizen who uh, cannot vote. So um, thanks for making the hard decisions for both of us. Okay, well, that remains the United States of America's loss. I'm sorry. <laughs> <but> <laughs> like fully, I don't, I don't actually feel better when you say that, but I hear you and I'm happy that you can take solace in that. You, I, I told you this on the phone that I, you know, I'm going to be the Barack Obama of this election when everyone else is like, I, I was like, I did not vote to authorize the Iraq war. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be me. I'm like, every time, if Joe Biden wins, every single day i'm gonna remind you like i did not vote to authorize joe biden here so (laughs) like um you know it's just yeah it's it's hard it's just all of it all of it all of it is really hard but also um to quote glennon doyle we can do hard things we can at least we can keep trying to do them the hard way which is also the right way i'll see you at the election oh my god i will see you far before that on the internet (laughs) (laughs) and also and also on election day ideally (laughs) you can find us many places on the internet callyourgirlfriend.com apple Podcasts, spotify stitcher we're on all your faves subscribe rate review you know the drill you can call us back leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943 that's 714-681-CYGF you can email us callyrgf at gmail.com We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf. And you can buy our book, Big Friendship, anywhere you buy books. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Smead. We have editorial support from Laura Bertacci. Producer is Jordan Bailey. This podcast is produced by Gina Delva.